0: I've just returned from, um, from a feminist conference at Book Fair in London where for a week over and over again, I was brought or made very, very conscious of the ways in which black women and white women do not hear each other. So yet again, this is an attempt The title of this poem is, A Woman Speaks. Moon-marked and touched by sun, my magic is unwritten, but when the sea turns back, it will leave my shape behind. I seek no favor, untouched by blood, unrelenting as the curse of love permanent as my errors or my pride. I do not mix love with pity, nor hate with scorn, and if you would know me, look into the entrails of Uranus where the restless oceans pound. I do not dwell within my birth nor my divinities, who am ageless and half-grown and still seeking my sisters in Dahomey, witches wear me inside their coiled clothes as our mothers did mourning. I have been woman for a long time, the wear, my smile. I am treacherous with old magic and the noon's new fury. With all your wide futures promised, I am woman and not white.
1: Greetings. Welcome to Lecture 7B of your Intro to African American Studies. The voice you heard was of Audre Lorde. Audre Lorde is an important um, intellectual scholar creative um, in the womanist feminist black feminist movement she was a public speaker as well as a lot of her texts a lot of her essays a lot of her poems were used to really like give voice to the movements as well as give voice to uh the intersectional uh oppressions of um, particularly african-american women so if you see these are her dates um her parents were caribbean born but she herself was raised in new york city she had two children and she defines herself and you would see that in the age race sex class uh essay she defines herself as a black lesbian mother warrior poet And she often uses these kind of complicated identity phrases in order to define herself because she was making a statement about the different ways that people see her or people see other people like her. Um, And that it's more than just, you know, one, it's not just a racial issue or racism that is impacting uh, her ideas of safety or her ideas of full access to citizenship or ideas of freedom um but it's all these things put together and they all need to be recognized so um as it says she's a proto intersectionality intersectionality or she has a proto intersectionality analysis um because Kimberly Crenshaw's work wasn't out yet by the time Audre Lorde died so but basically everyone um in feminist movements or feminist scholarship and womanist scholarship um, refers to Audre Lorde in order to Uh, have a different understanding, or at least a 1980s, 70s understanding of uh, intersectionality. Um, And so they very much quote her a lot. And she's often uh, upheld as being like the feminist or the womanist scholar in a very, in many different spaces. And so she's quoted a lot. Um, one of the essays that I'm asking you to read is called The Master's Tools Will Never Dismantle the Master's House. Uh, the other essay, Age, Race, Class, Sex, um, I'm making that optional. It's got some good stuff in it. It really kind of talks about, uh, it talks about intersectionality basically, but I'm kind of like, we'll give that one for optional. You can read that on your own time. Um, but for this essay, The Master's Tools Will Never Dismantle the Master's House is really a... Um, A quintessential work people cite this work often Um, sometimes they misquote it but they try to uh, because of the issues of uh, intersectionality really and issues of solidarity and what solidarity should mean um, as well as kind of a critique of white feminism um, during this time and uh, also just a critique of allyship a little bit in general Uh, All this happens in a brief three to four pages, so this article is often cited and often brought up in all these kind of various conversations. If you read the first paragraph or so, it kind of explains what I'm already putting in this slide. Uh, She was asked to comment on a previous conference that she was invited to or something like that, and then she presents this paper um at the anniversary for Simone de Beauvoir's text The Second Sex. The Second Sex is an early 20th century book that really was kind of not a proto-feminist it probably was a feminist text um but Simone de Beauvoir was really trying to break down once again the ideas of why women are different during her time period. She was a uh I want to say confidant of Sartre, Jean-Paul Sartre, the French philosopher, their contemporaries, um, as well as they were close. I will never say that they were lovers, but they were close because they were also trying to break down ideas of what it meant to be in a relationship. So they had that conversation. But de Beauvoir uh, really set up a lot of kind of the stage for like the foundation for how to talk about uh, the difference that women were having in relationship to patriarchy and tried to explain that um, in the early 20th century. So Audre Lorde is, you know, have, this is the stage, this is the context for her. Uh, she was the, uh, and she's critiquing kind of how she was invited to these events and being um, pigeonholed into speaking about certain topics and she's critiquing like what is basically a black lesbian's role in the feminist movement and not a question necessarily asking like what she thinks her role is because she knows her role as someone to you know add to the conversations and push for solidarity between multiple different types of people and talk about her personal experiences and etc 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 but from the people who are controlling the movements, the people who are controlling the conferences, it seems as though they have a different perspective of where Black women are uh, positioned, which is similar to the questions that I asked before um, about white educators going to the South to educate the formerly enslaved people versus what did the formerly enslaved people want to gain from education versus what the white missionaries wanted to bring them and the two may not have always seen eye to eye and that causes tension and causes misrepresentation and causes problems in general um, between the two groups and Audrey Lord is kind of criticizing also what the mission essentially of these conferences or of these movements if they're still limiting uh, people of color or third world women, as she might have used the language at the time, if they're limiting their roles to just being about kind of racial issues. Um, and so that goes to the next slide where she's talking about, uh, she's asking these questions. So, why are women of color only asked to speak on issues of race? And Do people realize that the emotional labor of having multiple locations of repression and the assumption of being a teacher because she's always asked to teach essentially other people about racial issues and that becomes her only role in the movement and also the assumption of asking people of color how should we as the organization approach racial issues and this is where like even for Audre Lorde these questions are valid um as well as really breaking down the actions or the you know pursuit of actions of white women particularly at this time in the movement because she's basically critiquing them a lot about if you're only allowing african-american women or third world women to speak about issues of race then you never know what thoughts they have on issues of capitalism or solidarity or organizing itself or psychology or motherhood because you only want them to speak about the racial issues even though they have perspectives and their racial or the cultural background would you know highlight their perspectives on these other various topics um also the idea about emotional labor and what women or at least the women that audrey lord is speaking for at this instance um of the assumption or should you always have to be a teacher because people knowing that they are ignorant and that's kind of a very vulnerable space to be knowing they're ignorant asking for uh to hear more so they can be aware but is that relationship always reciprocal? Um, these people are also, quote, adults. <laughs> so is it always about providing them information so that they can do whatever they want and there's never everything giving in return? And is that an unfair uh, labor relationship, if we want to talk about it in that way? Is that unfair labor relationship to the people of color or the people who have different kinds of marginalizations happening to them at once? Um, Versus some people who have multiple forms of privilege, um, only, you know, once again, still kind of uh, benefiting, like people with multiple privilege, still benefiting from the people who have multiple marginalizations. And we have to think about what that relationship really is. And so these are all coming up in Audre Lorde. So that's why i like, I didn't want to stay on it a little bit too long. Um, but I wanted to add this as part of your reflection. So I quote the statement of the master Souls never dismantled the master house. I want to ask you, what does she mean by this quote? And how do you read this quote in relation to black women's studies or what you know about black women's studies thus far? At the end of the essay, Audre Lorde talks about solidarity. Um, through the idea of self-reflection and self-reflection that may feel a little bit more like discomfort, like reading inside yourself, uh, basically your flaws, as well the idea of self-education and self-education that's not necessarily always asking uh, a person who has multiple marginalizations, but going beyond that and trying to quote educate yourself and walking into spaces that you may feel uncomfortable with as well Um, and what that means for self-education and so for me i'm asking you is this realistic to expect from people who have multiple um, privileges or just white women of the time how so how not give me your thoughts so like i said the age race class sex essay is optional um and i'm just going on a very very basic uh, thing about that um but it focuses on intersectionality and kind of once again, it's a proto intersectional piece. The term intersectionality wasn't around yet, but how do we, or at least Audre Lorde asks us, is how do we see and relate across diversity versus seeing and excluding because of deviance or perceived inferiority. And she would of course push for relating across difference, um, but often the conversation in even progressive or liberal spaces tends to be about excluding because of perceptions of inferiority and how do we focus on solidarity um because difference is hard because there's a lot of automatic societal assumptions about inferiority so like things about can um people who were and I'm making a very kind of extreme example but people who were virgins until they got married relate to people who are sex workers um, and both fight for, you know, equal motherhood rights about something, you know, and they both would have a common goal. But due to the idea of deviance and the idea of purity and how both these people were raised, will they be able to actually talk Um even though they have a common goal, but the social implications of each individual's and the paths they took may create barriers to conversation. And so, but can instead of relating across similarities, right, can we really across difference? And so, this comes into the re- reflection of number six. That's when I'm like, you don't have to necessarily read this article, but think about the concept of intersectionality as a personal um identity or personal definition or yeah description of your identity as well as the relationship that you will have to other people because of your personality or your personal identity and their personal identity and the experiences that come with that so for reflection 6a think about your age race sexuality gender class differences i don't necessarily want you to write them down but just like think about them in your head and how would you feel if you had to introduce yourself using all five or however many want to talk about aspects how would you feel if someone referred to themselves like that every time you met them like you're at the starbucks and your starbucks barista was like hi i'm jennifer i'm d-d-d-d-d-d-d. how would you feel um secondly And this is one that I really want you, like, to really think about, like, give it some time. Um, How does capitalism structure how you treat people? And I'm giving an example. Of course, there's more different ways that, you know, capitalism subtly makes us treat people differently than others, even though we espouse idea of I see everyone as equal. But um, even kind of related to the police conversation we had earlier in the semester, that you're definitely not going to treat the police the same as you treat um, your teacher. And of course, that's an issue of roles, but it definitely shows kind of a very clear example of we treat people differently or people treat us differently based upon their social status. Um, So think about who benefits in the capitalist system and how does that affect who we admire, who we respect, um, how people who, who serve are supposed to be treated and how we pity or hate those who are failing at achieving wealth or achieving kind of capitalist dreams. So I put the example, right, do you treat a university president the same way as you you treat the person serving at your Starbucks? And I'm using treat as kind of a, you know, general term here, but also kind of like who you think you need in your life or who you want to impress even. So most likely you might, you know, defer to the status of the university president versus your Starbucks person. And you expect kind of your Starbucks person to be happy to serve you. Um, But maybe not necessarily expecting your university president to serve you, even though university president is essentially a service job. You know, same thing with the president of the United States. It's a public servant job, um, but it tends to have a deferential Um, positioning that even though they are a public servant, they are a public servant with very extreme power, Um, and therefore you don't treat them as though they need to, you know, cater to your demands um, and should have a smiling face while doing it, but instead it becomes, you know, thank you Mr. President for what you've done and you use their title and all that other stuff. So I just really want you to think about that. It can be capitalist structures, uh, if you feel capitalism is not your bag, even just political structures of how you treat people, and I really, really want you to think about that question. So going into the next section and talking about James Baldwin and his essay, Here Be Dragons, um, I'm going to do again another, another one of those, I hope to get through these slides and I know it's probably like 30 slides from this um, point forward, but get, excuse me, sorry, get through some kind of um, fast because a lot of stuff is just going over stuff that you already know. You can read the slides themselves for definitional stuff and I'll try to add very brief commentary. But the first thing I wanted you to look at is the little, uh, graph or graphic here of the self-defined identity and how it um, connects back to socially defined constructs which goes back to self-defined identity and they are cyclical Um, because even though we talk about socially defined constructs remember that you know it relates to the individual level and so even though society creates these constructs society maintains these constructs society recreates these constructs people adopt them for their personal identities and so therefore the individual will be like, oh, society has this thing called heterosexuality. I must be heterosexual. Therefore, it becomes part of my identity. Um, But then if heterosexuality changed, so instead of being uh, sexually or romantically attracted to the opposite gender, I'm trying, I don't know the language anymore. Um, That's a little bit more open Uh, because opposite gender doesn't make sense because men and women aren't really opposites but using that language for now um, and then if heterosexuality became the definition of sexually attracted to the alien species of uh, Mars Martians then would your personal identity change then so or instead of being sexually attracted to men um, if you're a woman you're sexually attracted to martians and that is the new definition of heterosexuality and it will keep cycling 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 like that unless certain um socially defined constructs just basically disappeared um and then we have kind of different ideas of what your self-defined identity is but i wanted to really um, show through this graphic that it's a cyclical process and that as socially defined constructs change self-identity may change or your self-identity whatever if it changes may change what socially defined construct you're dealing with and it's kind of hard to get out of the cycle not impossible because there's a lot of social change going on but it is a cycle because we as citizens of the social um are impacting what is maintained was made in tradition etc so i wanted to briefly just go over um ideas of gender and sexuality and gender you can read the slide Um, but every time i talk about gender these are social constructs and they are just kind of roles uh based on um biological makeup so i say at the bottom here um, when we talk about gender as a social construct, we also have to think about what the kind of social norms or status quo of what gender is versus kind of what is progressive. And so for this moment, I'm talking about kind of this the status quo. So here I have a little statement. That the status quo would ask if you are passing and failing in gender, right? And so to maintain gender as this important social construct that would be men and women only, then everyone kind of has these kind of interesting language conversations that are you man enough? Or, you know, men who don't listen to football broadcast or watch TV, football TV, aren't men enough right and there's kind of these underlying either subtle or explicit conversations that people have to maintain what masculinity should look like same thing for women um the statement that i put here is acting like a lady whatever that means um but you know these are these kind of small things that maintain gender and it tends to be kind of talking about passing um as your gender or your feeling as your gender in some fashion Um, the next slide is just, it's a funny, um, advertisement for alcohol, but it also, once again, is constraining the gender ideas, right? So that this bathroom figure of man that we usually see, um, is basically like, I'm going to drink this beer, but women have to decide on 50 different things before they decide on what drink they want even though I think they have more creative drinks and I'd rather be a human of any gender to have all these fun drinks. One of them wants on fire, that seems fun. Um, But the point of the advertisement is to be like, thank God you're a man, because you only have to have one choice in beer and it's this beer here. I don't even know what beer that is. But once again, it's using the um, assumptions about how genders do things differently to show um you know men are you know one-minded have equal you know don't make a lot of choice and women kind of don't know what they want that kind of language um so i just wanted to show that as like an example of how um media as part of one of these institutions maintain certain gender roles and then their sexuality same thing you can read it um, but gender or sorry, sexuality is also a social construct and the status quo. And I don't have many good examples of this one. Um, but it's asking if you're normal or you're having normal sexual activity or deviant. And these might be more of those kind of like, uh, toilet humor or at least lower conversations or even just kind of personal conversations, um, about what it means and so even when people talk about uh, BDSM if you've heard that it tends to be underlined of deviant even though why it's deviant is kind of a conversation that people need to have as well um or why I guess vanilla and I did recently look at uh Fifty Shades of Grey, so sorry I'm using that language, <laughs> but vanilla kind of sexual relationships. Um, why is that considered normal? Why is it like missionary position and stuff? And so you'd have to have that conversation for sexuality as well. And so I wanted to show you a picture of different types of black uh, masculinity if I could use that term for this and that there is no you know one idea of black masculinity of course we would say the same thing for white masculinity however um and James Baldwin is really trying to like affect that a little bit saying that even though black masculinity is um performed differently by different people there's still kind of a push to black masculinity must be very masculine or if you're not very masculine you must have a rationale or reason for it not being masculine and that it's still all of a sudden affected by race and is it compared to white masculinity so just like the black feminism conversation there's a lot of different um there's a lot of different ways to interpret black masculinity and there's a lot of ways to look at the oppressions such as white masculinity is placed upon black men on how they can perform it who are they closer to and if they choose like RuPaul you see on the upper right um, if they choose to not perform a typical and I can't even use that word typical not a uh, respectable quote-unquote um, black masculinity then how are they read how are people in society going to treat them um, and what does it even mean for quote the black cause or the black uplift right um, and that's why like if you look at civil rights imagery a lot of the black men just like the black women aren't in very proper clothes they're kind of usually always wearing ties they're wearing their sunday best and that was on purpose right and so even the kind of if you see other pictures and maybe you'd have to find those pictures of people wearing overalls and looking like farmers, that wasn't as um, as strong an image as black men in suits, because black men in suits could show that they are closer to, you know, white ideas of respectability, white ideas of wealth even, versus if they were in their farmer outfits Um, in overalls and that kind of thing which was a class kind of conversation about black masculinity. Um, And even just thinking about that um, as I'm talking to you right now the ideas of where strength is because black overall wearing individual could actually be seen as being physically strong and I'm going to use the word brute as well which may be something to fear for white individuals watching civil rights movement stuff because of that kind of narrative and that stereotype versus black men in suits which you would think they're you know the nicer frame so it's kind of interesting to show even um Barack Obama and how he performed uh, a black masculinity as being the president of the United States and is that any different than Little Wayne or Jay-Z or RuPaul or um Childish Gambino So we'd have to think about, could any of the other people in the frame be the president with what they wear or how they present themselves as black masculine folks. So another thing I wanted to go through is the idea of cisgender um, and cisgender, or as a shorthand saying cis, a person whose gender identity and biological sex assigned at birth align. So you are masculine and you are male assigned at birth. Um, or you're socially accepted as such. And some of the privileges, and I'm not going into this too deeply, but I put two kind of um, statements to say privileged people have a cisgender that people might not think about um, as different than people who are trans or transgender. So such as, I can use public restrooms without fear of verbal abuse, physical intimidation, or arrest, and strangers don't ask me what my genitals look like. So one is kind of a uh, a little bit more innocuous, one is a little extreme or maybe they're both extreme um, to show cisgender the definition and the privileges that people are cisgender have due to how society is structured to normalize cisgenderness and to um, call deviant anything that's not. This is the same thing that's happened with heterosexuality and the kind of conceptual term that people use to talk about the dominance of heterosexuality is heteronormativity. Um, also, you may read in some academic journals, it's also called compulsory heterosexuality, um, but these are the basically the norms that say that sexual and marital relations are most are only fitting between men and women. And consequently, a normative view is one that involves alignment of biological sex, sexuality, and gender identity and gender roles. So it's even those conversations that we're kind of breaking down in 2018 and onward that just because someone is uh, may not be cisgender does not necessarily mean they are automatically um, homosexual or queer in, in their sexual uh, orientation. Uh, so there's those conversations, right? So I want you to, just for this moment, consider um, the following five statements that you can read below. Pick three of them and discuss briefly what are the differences you can imagine between a person who is marginalized because of their gender, sexuality, and race in the United States, and someone who is white, cisgendered, and heterosexual. And you can do Reflection 7 and you can read it below.
0: All this emphasis upon black man and white does emphasize something which is here, but it emphasizes or perhaps exaggerates it, and therefore makes us uh, put people together in groups which they ought not to be in. I have more in common with a black scholar than I have with a white man who is against scholarship. And you have more in common with a white author than you have with someone who's against all literature. So why must we always concentrate on color, or religion, or this? There are other ways of connecting men. I'll tell you this. When I left this country in 1948, I left this country with one reason only, one reason. I didn't care where I went. I might have gone to Hong Kong, I might have gone to Timbuktu, I ended up in Paris, on the streets of Paris. With $40 in my pocket on the theory that nothing worse could happen to me there than it already happened to me here. You talk about making it as a writer by yourself, you had to be able then to turn up all the intent of which you live because once you turn your back on this society, you may die. You may die. And it's very hard to sit as a typewriter and concentrate on that if you're afraid of the world around you. The years I lived in Paris did one thing for me. They released me from that particular social terror which was not the paranoia of my own mind, but a real social danger visible in the face of every cop, every boss, everybody.
1: So continuing from the previous lecture, Lecture 7b, um, I just wanted to say more like giving, so 7b ended with talking about sex and sexuality and gender and kind of going back to the idea of social constructs and setting up a uh, what Baldwin is trying to address in his essay, Here Be Dragons. And so in the next section um, on 7c, um, the context, and this is really basic, this is like, you know bullet point kind of information here um is that in the essay itself he tries to address the intersection of being queer and black and he's writing this in the 1980s he's also writing this as an older black queer man at the time so and at a time where even kind of a public conversation about black queerness that isn't related in you know the emasculation of black men or at least he's addressing that um he's trying to make a you know analysis of what it means to be at that one intersection of being or multiple intersections of being black male and red as queer um both within african-american community as well as in the white community and how people treated baldwin differently um both for good and bad um because of this and he kind of would address it as being a freak um in society and he's really trying to like grapple with that idea um it's also connected to his personal identity and his experiences uh that he's trying to relate some of this conversation um and questions that he's having is how racism sexism homophobia transphobia etc reproduce inequalities and also reproduce kind of queer experiences and using queer, not necessarily talking about gender and sexuality that aren't uh, cisgender or heteronormative, but those odd experiences that people don't necessarily know how to engage with you because you don't fit this norm or the standards that they've been used to. Um, It's also, he addresses how white male heterosexuality, cisgender, etc. is a privileged um class or privilege uh, status in this particular structure of society, particularly a structure of the society that he lived through um, from 19 uh, 1920s and onward um, And so he really wants to like give that focus to that um, these kind of things And the context I also want to provide is just some, a general kind of like contemporary understanding of uh, queerness in African American life as well as current um, how African American queer folks are currently living and the same um, multiple levels of marginalization and oppression are still affecting them the same systems that Baldwin is talking about in the 80s are still having today as well as providing a little bit of uh, information just in case you have misinformation or no information and so i just wanted to add some statistics um for the next few slides i appreciate like uh this picture that's happening on this slide of a man ho- or of someone who i would read as male but i don't know because we have to have that kind of conversation right um but in looking at his <laughs> billboard sign says i'm a black man a black gay man i am a black man and i am a man and trying to be very at least i'm assuming that this individual is trying to be very clear about his identity um and then you see uh not only does he have a kente cloth which tends to be representation of like connecting african american culture to african culture uh on the billboard there's also a outline of Africa filled in and it's supposed to be filled in with the rainbow this is a black and white picture but you can read that it's a rainbow so it's once again trying to show that their identity is not just uh, you know being black doesn't necessarily have to fit into those cisgender norms it can also be a little bit more queer so to speak and so with the statistics here, I wanted to say that one, billion, 1 million LGBTQ and remember L- LGBTQ is going to stand for lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans and queer. Um, and it may be leaving out other individuals such as people who identify as asexual and aromantic or people who identify or who are intersex or who live some other non normative quote unquote um, gender and sexual experience so this is one million of the statistic that i could find and then people who are identifying through some um, census materials are disproportionately young so there's probably a lot more people under the age of 25 who are identifying um in these categories they're disproportionately female and nearly one-third of all african-american same-sex couples are raising children so they're definitely trying to um also be part of this conversation about parenting, childcare, as well as being queer. So other statistics, I just want you I'm really not gonna read them. I want you to look at them though. They're all kind of the same uh format. But the at least one thinking about the economic insecurities um is an important facet that needs to be addressed. The next slide talks about the violence and harassment that uh numerous people are facing and continue to face um hiv is still very prevalent and even though hiv in the public conversation um is a little bit less popular or seems to be kind of like you know people have quote-unquote solved the aids problem um in african-american communities particularly with black men this is not the case uh and marketing materials and resources on hiv towards african-american populations isn't as um, accessible as it is for white counterparts and that's an interesting kind of uh, you know inequity that's happening and lastly religious intolerance a very large percentage still of the african-american community is um, christian and their Christianity uh, that they practice has uh, certain intolerances and this is not you know I'm not going to say every African-American family but it, den- it tends to come up in churches but we definitely are seeing a change as he says in the bottom part of the slide, that equality, marriage equality at least, um, has increased within Black Protestants since the last 10 years. So there's been a a trend um, in the inequities uh, for African-American queer people within their families. Some of the other context is also just how we address uh, queerness in general, um, and the difference between African Americans and white Americans, and the propaganda or the publishing or the media context of what it means to have a, a progressive or liberal or um, representative queer, uh, you know, just a representative queer, period, kind of. And so, even for the 1980s, I can't imagine. But today, at least, when we think, Or at least when you look at media once again it's the same thing as the women's movement when you look at who's in charge of the organizations when you look at what um, activists are fighting for or what citizen rights or civil rights are more easily um, accepted by kind of the status quo or by the government or by the institutions they tend to be of they tend to be the um things that are fought for by white gay men or white gay men tend to be on the forefront of certain things or white gay men tend to be the figureheads for um lgbt rights and we can even like a more immediate way of looking at that is in media um in that even though ellen well ellen kind of is kind of unfits the mold but the most popular uh lgbt sitcom was will and grace which is mostly white males and that became popular when Ellen came out as queer. Um, I don't know how many years earlier basically she had one more season and she went off air so that wasn't the forefront of kind of like having a public presentation of queerness um, it was more so will and grace and it could just be the time period was different maybe if Ellen came out in when will and grace was on TV I don't know but it does say something about where does um the presentation or the respectability of queerness um where does it sit does it sit in uh, or can it sit in other bodies or other uh practices that aren't the practices of white gay men and so we have to think about as i said in my little slides the privilege of maleness because there's still a privilege in that status that uh if you pass right if you look like the stereotypical white male even though your partner may be another white male um there's still that privilege that you can walk in spaces and people don't see your uh sexual orientation on your body and so they can still provide you all kinds of other privileges that are part of being male part of being white and then just in general they are usually of upper class and have access to money and having access to money still is one of the kind of major uh it definitely aids absolutely into um, lobbying and making sure you know your policies are heard because you have money to promote it in media, as well as to have lobbyists who can go to Congress and talk about your cause in their lobbyist language. Um, But I'm not going to deny that even the white gay men have been at the forefront and may not have been listening to having an intersectional analysis. They have broken down a lot of the citizen rights. Um, that were used before on the books, um, but now basically have changed a lot of the institutional uh, oppressions that were occurring in the past, some of them being the anti-sodomy laws um, that were really having and affecting a lot or affecting a lot of queer individuals. Some healthcare matters, um, some marriage issues have been addressed some adoption issues have been addressed general tolerance um, as well as uh, more knowledge about queer issues have been due to white gay men um, activism uh, workplace discrimination in some ways as well as just general visibility in law and academia in other spaces but there's still in generally a lack of solidarity with race-led movements or even some women-led movements uh, it always seems like there's like a break as well as just a um, lack of connecting on similar issues or even a lack of allowing women to lead and supporting women um, oriented issues so even though uh, white men may have been fighting for adoption they weren't necessarily fighting for childcare but women-led movements are fighting for childcare and reasonably priced or free childcare which would allow them to go to the workplace but a lot of issues such as men in general make a higher income than women um, or and can hire out you know, uh, parenting responsibilities to another individual were not necessarily something that some um, white gay men were fighting for. Therefore, it kind of didn't work out. Uh, This is more informational. Um, one of the major LGBTQ rights events was Stonewall, the Stonewall incident that was happening in New York City. There are movements that happened before Stonewall or events that happened before Stonewall in other parts of the United States, but Stonewall is the one that a lot of people know. Um, but in this uh, Comedy Central video, um, they centered on Marsha P. Johnson and her work in the Stonewall incident. So because I'm using, because I wanted to show you the Marsha P. Johnson clip, um, there's also a conversation about trans people of color and where they fit into kind of this conversation specifically at their intersection of, at their uh, multiple locations of marginalization. Um, Because like I said, white gay men have fought for that kind of list of things, adoption, tolerance in some areas, visibility in some areas. They are the ones that you know get the benefit of that they get the visibility they get um, some of the rights it's not as uncommon um, so to speak but when we get to trans people of color then the issues of being multiple uh, types of quote deviation even though I'm not saying they're deviant but they are perceived to be deviant and are punished as deviant um, by the structures in society they Their citizen rights or their fight and their activism for certain citizen rights aren't centered so things like police brutality which definitely is affecting trans women of color or trans women who trans black women and trans latinx women um police brutality definitely affects them and they're not being that's not a Issue that's often addressed within the LGBTQIA movement. It's often addressed in the Black movement, but then, like I'm kind of in, um, kind of, uh, you know, subtly talking about earlier, that the Black movement is not necessarily taking on LGBTQIA causes. Another thing, just generally, unfair criminalization, as well as when they are criminalized or put into the incarceration, um, then they are misgendered and put into prison populations which are based on their gender assignment at birth and not necessarily the gender assignment that they currently follow um, there's also the idea of invisibility and erasure in history and policies poverty in general both access to jobs and discrimination because of jobs discrimination for housing gender discrimination for health care or lack of health care um, for their particular issues um, as well as deviance or just this perception that they're deviant both in media and in the general population. So when we get to James Baldwin specifically, um he wrote and I already said this, he wrote the article in nineteen eighty five when he was sixty one. And this is also kind of at the beginning stages of queer scholarship. Um there is definitely a queer scholarship that happens before the 80s um, particularly happening during the women's movements and they're trying to understand what it means to be sexually fluid um, breaking down ideas of heterosexuality and the compulsoriness of it um, but he's adding to the kind of conversation particularly in the 1980s and thinking that this is definitely during the, uh, the AIDS crisis he's talking in the middle of that conversation um, so a lot of you know, death and dying in uh, ignorance by the government is happening during this time that he's trying to like grapple personally with what it means to be both black, queer and male in the United States. Um, I like this uh, conversation, this quote that he wrote as a black gay person who was sexually conundrum to society is already long before the question of sexuality comes into it. They are menaced and marked because he or she is black. The sexual question comes after the question of color and simply one more aspect of the danger in which all black people live and this is baldwin writing and some people today would say that that's even a limited view of the world that um particularly for people who are trans um or people who are not passing for their whatever their sexual identity is and people can read sexuality on them then the question of sexuality is coming first or coming at the same time as their racial identity. So when you read someone, you know, it only takes you a few seconds to assume certain properties about them because that's how we're trained. We, you know, are very trained to read race or we assume we read race. And we're very trained to also read gender and gender has the assumption of sexual um, orientation. So for one who is trans, all that comes into their mind at first, and therefore they are marked in menace because of the multiple intersections that they are read to be. Um, briefly (laughs) I want to talk about the title and so in the next section it says here be dragons freaks in the American ideal of manhood Um, and there's a picture of a map and this is like an oldie map uh, one of the first maps that was trying to add the North American continent as part of it Um, but maps were still uh, were not scientific so to speak and still connected to the idea that there are various monsters um, in the ocean and one of the earliest maps said, particularly for, I think, either the North American continent or somewhere in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, here be dragons. Um, not to boys. Baldwin uses this terminology to talk about the idea of the unknown in a way, or the known unknown, um, to even be more specific in that queerness or gay identity or the, once again, intersections of blackness and maleness and uh, homosexuality is a freak, is a known unknown, so to speak, and is perceived to be as such by particularly American society. And so, if we want to talk about and de- I keep on to call him Du Bois. And Baldwin talks about it um, being connected to citizenship. And I already went over the idea of like citizenship has been connected to whiteness for a long time. Um, another scholar could probably say citizenship is also connecting to manhood and masculinity until basically the 1920s, 30s. Um, and, but Baldwin wants to add to this conversation that there's a citizenship or what we will call a national definition of humanity or national definition of humanness. But its opposite is the freak. Um, and the freak is just the term that he's using, but someone that causes, you know, derision, someone that causes a abject um, relationship, someone who is automatically deviant to societal norms, someone that is um, read or felt to be disgusting um, in the you know and against any sort of commonality and you do not want to be a freak um but he also uh talks about the complications which is why he uses or maybe i use the term abject to talk about even though it is pushed away even though it is denied it is also desired so people are denying blackness they're denying black sexuality but um, and talking about earlier and kind of the Jezebel stereotype, it's also desired. So, you know, you kind of want what uh, is grotesque to you. And that's kind of the desire or the appeal of the grotesque itself. You know, it's so gross that it's amazing. It's kind of the conversation. And I'm quoting another scholar and I'm just going to read the first sentence. But the American African-American sexuality is in the irrational and therefore outside the bounds of citizenship. Um, machinery. So that same thing, right? Trying to say African-American sexuality and African-American people plus their sexuality is not part of what American ideals of citizenship were. And there is some historical examples of this. Um, I'm not going to, to go too deeply in them, but I would definitely tell you to look into Saturi um, Bartman, aka the hot and hot Venus. She was a performer And I'm using performer in a good way because she was basically a slave. But she was a performer um, in Europe during the time of enslavement um, in the Americas. And she had a larger buttocks and other genitalia. And that was and she was basically shown around in she wasn't naked per se even though you see in the picture here she's shown as naked she can had a skin tight um brown colored uh suit on but it you know emphasized her parts and she was uh deemed the venus so she was hot on top is coming from the people she's from southern africa and venus because it was something to love but at the same time her body was seen as grotesque at the same time so she was shown around Europe and everybody had this you know complicated relationship to her um, so I want you to look more about her history but then it connects to the idea of the brute um, and this picture you see here uh, it's a World War two picture I think um, and saying that Germany I think uh, is a brute in his taking the women and so you need to list to fight that. Um, but having a very common or very similar um, picture um, in the Vogue magazine, and LeBron Saint, Joan, uh, sorry, LeBron James says he didn't realize what he was doing, um, and maybe even didn't see the picture until after it was published. But it kind of shows once again this idea of, you know, African people are brutish or African males specifically are brutish um, and only are there to steal um, white women and you need to fight them. So similar uh, iconography is used here. So in the article itself, and I'm only going over this briefly, um, it's about a fear of the other. So the other, the grotesque, the deviant, the abject is you're afraid of it but The other, whatever that is, is also a part of the self. So reading Baldwin, freaks are called freaks and they're treated as they are treated in the main abominably because they are human beings who cause to echo deep within us our most profound terrors and desires. Most of us, however, do not appear to be freaks, though we are rarely what we appear to be. We are for the most part, visibly male or female, our social roles defined by our sexual equipment. And he's relating to the fact that everyone is, he called it androgynous. So everyone is both male and female. But reading, um, but reading the, a freak you, or whatever you're calling the other, you read it in yourself and you have an emotional reaction to it, whatever that emotional reaction may be. And for people with power, that emotional reaction may be with force and with negative force. And so this keeps the idea, or at least I'm telling you, it's keeping the idea of normality because normality doesn't even really exist and normality is a construct. Um, But having a fear of the other rather than acceptance of the other or any other type of relationship maintains what is normal. Therefore, there is a ability to define what is not in the other. And so I want you to think for a moment um, and this is not necessarily a reflection, but what is whiteness or the idea of whiteness without the abnegation and abnegation, once again, it's like denial of blackness. Um, can whiteness exist without there being an othering of black? Can you define what a white identity would be without saying it's not a black identity? Um, and this is the same conversation that we could have with heterosexuality. Can you discuss heterosexuality without there being an idea of homosexuality or without othering homosexuality? Can heterosexual and homosexuality be on the same page? And once again, this is probably a 2018 conversation that maybe it can, but while Baldwin is writing about it, and basically up until 2005 even, um, there was definitely like, well, if you're not straight, then you're gay right but maybe there are spectrums in between all of it um and we shouldn't be so uh we shouldn't be so strict in defining people by these very not actually well-defined terms such as heterosexuality and homosexuality so reflection number eight um, and this is the last reflection, but everything else is important information, so please read. Um, how does being Black impact Baldwin's sexual behavior? So if you look into the article itself, um, think about all the events and experiences that Baldwin talks about, and how is it impacted by his racial identity. B is how do white people he's encountered react to his black men queerness? And C, why is Michael Jackson, the singer, confusing to Baldwin, why does, what does it say about Baldwin's optimism for black queer identity? So briefly again, um, the next uh, article, and I made this optional as well, is just about queer studies q-u-a-r-e and so this was presented by e patrick johnson he's a teacher at northwest and he does performance studies but he basically is trying to say we should use instead the word queer when we're talking about black queer studies or black queer theory or black queer interest because queer is read as white um and this is kind of talking about uh the same thing about the white gay male being kind of the face of lgbt rights and struggle um And E. Patrick Johnson wants to challenge that a little bit, particularly within scholarship. And so here, I just briefly was trying to say that queer studies also, even though it seems to be kind of on the forefront of intersectionality, is not always intersectional. And Gloria Anzaldúa, a very, uh, once again, another prominent theorist, said that queer is used as a false umbrella. And so it says that all queer ethnicities classes are short under, but like I said, when you look at actually the... Um, protests when you look at the scholarship queer tends to be um, equated to a white and often a white male experience or a white um, androgynous experience but doesn't um, look at the other facets of how people are living their lives as part of a queer experience Um, and then for me and for this class Uh, it goes on kind of the whole idea of why are we kind of questioning the idea of what is queer, what is black, what is included and not included, what is, where do women or black women fit within African American studies? Because African Americans itself, African American studies, the discipline has not always been intersectional and even today how people are challenging um, what becomes African American studies sometimes people still have to reiterate the idea that it should be intersectional. Intersectional work is being done. There's a lot more literature about um, African-American women. There's a lot more literature about different classes of African-American people. There's a lot more literature about queer identities within the African-American community. But as always, more work should be done. And so the questions I have here are just the questions that are being asked in the field and I'm consistently being asked in the field. And we can basically say in order to keep the field honest, um, because once you kind of make assumptions about what African-American studies is, then it stops being a critical framework. It stops asking the deeper questions. And so having these deeper questions at the forefront of what should be studied, of how it should be studied, and what should actually make the canon of African-American history experience, as well as the more theoretical and praxis based information, you know basically I'm just saying all oh, this is good so um kind of we can take it as what are the questions or what are the assumptions so african-american says is a criticism of racist norms over time and space but do african-american say should also be a criticism of gender norms within the african-american community and a criticism of heteronormativity within african-american community second one being african-american studies purpose is to pursue knowledge from the internal perspective of africana people but we also have to criticize should or we have to acknowledge or recognize that all experiences should be valued and what are all those experiences and thirdly being african-american supporters are advocates for centering the africana experiences and knowledges and is support withheld though for certain populations so just like every time i refer back to the civil rights movement do we talk about where were the black women in the civil rights movement? Do we talk about where were the queer folks in the civil rights movement? Which leads me to my last segue um, is with Bayard Rustin. And Bayard Rustin was actually um, Martin Luther King's right-hand man. He was a black queer man, but his history often gets erased in the larger conversation of um, civil rights movement. I would assume because of his queer identity, Um, but you know, that's for history to say. And so in general, that's the end of 7C. Hope to see you in lecture number eight. continuing from the previous lecture lecture 7b um i just wanted to say more like giving so 7b ended with talking about sex and sexuality and gender and kind of going back to the idea of social constructs and setting up a uh, what baldwin is trying to address in his essay here be dragons and so in the next section um, on 7c um the context and this is really basic this is like you know bullet point kind of information here um is that in the essay itself he tries to address the intersection of being queer and black and he's writing this in the 1980s he's also writing this as an older black queer man at the time so and at a time where even kind of a public conversation about black queerness that isn't related in you know the emasculation of black men or at least he's addressing that um he's trying to make a you know analysis of what it means to be at that one intersection of being or multiple intersections of being black male and read as queer um both within african-american community as well as in the white community and how people treated baldwin differently um both for good and bad um because of this and he kind of would address it as being a freak um in society and he's really trying to like grapple with that idea um it's also connected to his personal identity and his experiences uh that he's trying to relate some of this conversation um and questions that he's having is how racism sexism homophobia transphobia etc reproduce inequalities and also reproduce kind of queer experiences and using queer not necessarily talking about gender and sexuality that aren't uh, cisgender or heteronormative but those odd experiences that people don't necessarily know how to engage with you because you don't fit this norm or the standards that they've been used to. Um, it's also, he addresses how white male heterosexuality, cisgender, etc., is a privileged, um, class or privileged, uh, status in this particular structure of society, particularly the structure of the society that he lived through, um, from 19, uh, 1920s and onward. Um, and so he really wants to like give that focus to that um these kind of things. And the context I also want to provide is just some a general kind of like contemporary understanding of uh queerness in African American life as well as current um how African American queer folks are currently living and the same um multiple levels of marginalization and oppression are still affecting them the same systems that baldwin is talking about in the 80s are still having today as well as providing a little bit of uh information just in case you have misinformation or no information and so i just wanted to add some statistics um for the next few slides i appreciate like uh this picture that's happening on this slide of a man ho- or of someone who i would read as male but i don't know because we have to have that kind of conversation right um but in looking at his (laughs) billboard sign says i'm a black man a black gay man i am a black man and i am a man and trying to be very at least i'm assuming that this individual is trying to be very clear about his identity um and then you see uh not only does he have a kente cloth which tends to be representation of like connecting african american culture to african culture uh on the billboard there's also a outline of africa filled in and it's supposed to be filled in with the rainbow this is a black and white picture but you can read that it's a rainbow so it's once again trying to show that their identity is not just uh you know being black doesn't necessarily have to fit into those cisgender norms it can also be a little bit more queer so to speak And so with the statistics here, I wanted to say that one billion, one million LGBTQ, and remember LGBTQ is going to stand for lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans and queer. Um, And it may be leaving out other individuals such as people who identify as asexual and aromantic or people who identify or who are intersex or who live some other non normative quote unquote um, gender and sexual experience so this is one million of the statistic that i could find and then people who are identifying through some um, census materials are disproportionately young so there's probably a lot more people under the age of 25 who are identifying um in these categories they're disproportionately female and nearly one-third of all african-american same-sex couples are raising children so they're definitely trying to Um, also be part of this conversation about parenting childcare, as well as being queer so other statistics i just want you i'm not going to read them i want you to look at them though they're all kind of the same uh format but the at least one thinking about the economic insecurities um is an important facet that needs to be addressed the next slide talks about the violence and harassment that uh numerous people are facing and continue to face um hiv is still very prevalent and even though hiv in the public conversation um is a little bit less popular or seems to be kind of like you know people have quote-unquote solved the aids problem um in african-american communities particularly with black men this is not the case uh and marketing materials and resources on hiv towards african-american populations isn't as um, accessible as it is for white counterparts and that's an interesting kind of uh, you know inequity that's happening and lastly religious intolerance a very large percentage still of the african-american community is um christian and their Christianity uh, that they practice has uh, certain intolerances. And this is not, you know, I'm not going to say every African-American family, but it does it tends to come up in churches. But we definitely are seeing a change, as it says in the bottom part of the slide, that equality, marriage equality at least, um, has increased within Black Protestants since the last 10 years. So there's been a, a trend um, in the inequities uh, for African-American queer people within their families. Some of the other context is also just how we address uh, queerness in general um, and the difference between African-Americans and white Americans and the propaganda or the publishing or the media context of what it means to have a, a progressive or liberal or um, representative queer uh, You know, just a representative queer, period, kind of. And so even for the 1980s, I can't imagine. But today, at least, when we think, or at least when you look at media, once again, it's the same thing as the women's movement. When you look at who's in charge of the organizations, when you look at what um, activists are fighting for or what citizen rights or civil rights are more easily um accepted by kind of the status quo or by the government or by the institutions they tend to be of they tend to be the um things that are fought for by white gay men or white gay men tend to be on the forefront of certain things or white gay men tend to be the figureheads for um lgbt rights and we can even like a more immediate way of looking at that is in media um in that even though Ellen well Ellen kind of is kind of unfits the mold but the most popular uh, LGBT sitcom was Will & Grace which is mostly white males and that became popular when Ellen came out as queer um, I don't know how many years earlier basically she had one more season and she went off air so that wasn't the forefront of kind of like having a public presentation of queerness um, it was more so Will and Grace. And it could just be the time period was different. Maybe if Ellen came out and when Will and Grace was on TV. I don't know. But it does say something about where does um, the presentation or the respectability of queerness, um, where does it sit? Does it sit in uh, or can it sit in other bodies or other uh, practices that aren't the practices of white gay men? And so we have to think about, as I said in my little slides, the privilege of maleness, because there's still a privilege in that status that uh, if you pass, right, if you look like the stereotypical white male, even though your partner may be another white male, um, there's still that privilege that you can walk in spaces and people don't see your uh, sexual orientation, on your body and so they can still provide you all kinds of other privileges that are part of being male part of being white and then just in general they are of, usually of upper class and have access to money and having access to money still is one of the kind of major uh it definitely aids absolutely into um, lobbying and making sure you know your policies are heard because you have money to promote it in media, as well as to have lobbyists who can go to Congress and talk about your cause in their lobbyist language. Um, but I'm not going to deny that even the white gay men have been at the forefront and may not have been listening to having an intersectional analysis. They have broken down a lot of the citizen rights um, that were used before on the books, um, but now basically have changed a lot of the institutional uh, oppressions that were occurring in the past, some of them being anti-sodomy laws um, that were really having and affecting a lot or affecting a lot of queer individuals. Some healthcare care matters, um, some marriage issues have been addressed, some adoption issues have been addressed general tolerance um, as well as uh, more knowledge about queer issues have been due to white gay men um, activism Uh, workplace discrimination in some ways as well as just general visibility in law and academia in other spaces but there's still in generally a lack of solidarity with race-led movements or even some women-led movements Uh, it always seems like there's like a break as well as just a um lack of connecting on similar issues or even a lack of allowing women to lead and supporting women um, oriented issues so even though uh white men may have been fighting for adoption they weren't necessarily fighting for child care but women-led movements are fighting for child care and reasonably priced or free child care which would allow them to go to the workplace but a lot of issues such as men in general make a higher income than women um or and can hire out you know uh, parenting responsibilities to another individual were not necessarily something that some Um, white gay men were fighting for it therefore it kind of didn't work out Uh, this is more informational Um, one of the major LGBTQ rights events was Stonewall the Stonewall incident that was happening in New York City there are movements that happened before Stonewall or events that happened before Stonewall in other parts of the United States but Stonewall is the one that a lot of people know Um, but in this uh, Comedy Central video um, Theory center on Marsha P. Johnson and her work in the Stonewall incident. So, because I'm using, because I wanted to show you the Marsha P. Johnson clip, um, there's also a conversation about trans people of color and where they fit into kind of this conversation, specifically at their intersection of. At their uh, multiple locations of marginalization Um, because like I said white gay men have fought for that kind of list of things adoption tolerance in some areas visibility in some areas they are the ones that you know get the benefit of that they get the visibility they get um, some of the rights it's not as uncommon um, so to speak but when we get to trans people of color then the issues of being multiple uh types of quote deviation even though i'm not saying they're deviant but they are perceived to be deviant and are punished as deviant um, by the structures in society they their citizen rights or their fight and their activism for certain citizen rights aren't centered so things like police brutality which definitely is affecting trans women of color or trans women who trans black women and trans latinx women um police brutality definitely affects them and they're not being that's not a issue that's often addressed within the lgbtqia movement it's often addressed in the black movement but then like i'm kind of in um kind of uh you know subtly talking about earlier that the Black movement is not necessarily taking on LGBTQIA causes. Another thing, just generally unfair criminalization, as well as when they are criminalized or put into the incarceration, um, then they are misgendered and put into prison populations which are based on their gender assignment at birth and not necessarily the gender assignment that they currently follow. Um, There's also the idea of invisibility and erasure and history and policies, poverty in general, both access to jobs and discrimination because of jobs, discrimination for housing, discrimination for health care or lack of health care for their particular issues, um, as well as deviance or just this perception that they're deviant both in media and in the general population. So when we get to James Baldwin specifically um he wrote and I already said this he wrote the article in 1985 when he was 61 and this is also kind of at the beginning stages of queer scholarship um there is definitely a queer scholarship that happens before the 80s um particularly happening during the women's movements and they're trying to understand what it means to be sexually fluid um breaking down ideas of heterosexuality and the compulsoriness of it um but he's adding to the kind of conversation particularly in the 1980s and thinking that this is definitely during the uh the aids crisis he's talking in the middle of that conversation um so a lot of you know death and dying uh and ignorance by the government is happening during this time that he's trying to like grapple personally with what it means to be both black queer and male in the united states um i like this Uh, conversation this quote that he wrote as a black gay person who is sexually conundrum to society is already long before the question of sexuality comes into it they are menaced and marked because he or she is black the sexual question comes after the question of color and simply one more aspect of the danger in which all black people live and this is baldwin writing and some people today would say that that's even a limited view of the world that Um, particularly for people who are trans um, or people who are not passing for their whatever their sexual identity is and people can read sexuality on them then the question of sexuality is coming first or coming at the same time as their racial identity so when you read someone you know it only takes you a few seconds to assume certain properties about them because that's how we're trained we you know are very trained to read race or we assume we read race and we're very trained to also read gender and gender has the assumption of sexual um, orientation so for one who is trans, all that comes into their mind at first, and therefore they are marked in menace because of the multiple intersections that they are read to be. Um, Briefly, (laughs) I wanted to talk about the title. And so in the next section, it says, Here be dragons, freaks and the American ideal of manhood. Um, And there's a picture of a map. And this is like an oldie map, uh, one of the first maps that was trying to add the North American continent as part of it. Um, But maps were still, uh, were not scientific, so to speak. And so connected to the idea that there are various monsters um, in the ocean. And one of the earliest maps said, particularly for I think either the North American continent or somewhere in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, here be dragons. Um, to, not to voice. <laughs> Baldwin uses this terminology to talk about the idea of the unknown in a way or the known unknown um, to me even be more specific in that queerness or gay identity or the once again intersections of blackness and maleness and uh, homosexuality is a freak is a known unknown so to speak and is perceived to be as such by particularly american society and so if we want to talk about and de- I keep wanting to call him Du Bois. And Baldwin talks about it um, being connected to citizenship. And I already went over the idea of like citizenship has been connected to whiteness for a long time. Um, Another scholar could probably say citizenship is also connecting to manhood and masculinity until basically the 1920s, 30s. Um, But Baldwin wants to add to this conversation that there's a citizenship or what we will call a national definition of humanity or national definition of humanness. But its opposite is the freak. Um, and the freak is just the term that he's using, but someone that causes, you know, derision, someone that causes a abject um, relationship, someone who is automatically deviant to societal norms, someone that is um, read or felt to be disgusting um, in the you know, and against any sort of commonality. And you do not want to be a freak. Um, but he also uh, talks about the complications, which is why he uses, or maybe I use the term abject to talk about even though it is pushed away, even though it is denied, it is also desired. So people are denying Blackness, they're denying Black sexuality, but um, and talking about earlier and kind of the Jezebel stereotype, it's also desired. So, you know, you kind of want what uh, is grotesque to you. And that's kind of the desire or the appeal of the grotesque itself. You know, it's so gross that it's amazing. It's kind of a conversation. And I'm quoting another scholar and I'm just going to read the first sentence. But the American African-American sexuality is in the irrational and therefore outside the bounds of citizenship. Um, machinery. So that same thing, right? Trying to say African-American sexuality and African-American people plus their sexuality is not part of what American ideals of citizenship were. And there is some historical examples of this. Um, I'm not going to, need to go too deeply in them, but I would definitely tell you to look into Saturi Sacherib- um, Bartman aka the hot and Tot Venus she was a performer and I'm using performer uh, in a good way because she was basically a slave but she was a performer um, in Europe during the time of enslavement um, in the Americas and she had a larger buttocks and other gentilia and that was and she was basically shown around in she wasn't naked per se even though you see in the picture here she's shown as naked she can't had a skin tight um, brown colored uh, suit on but it you know emphasized her parts and she was Uh, Deemed the Venus. So she was hot on top. It's coming from the people. She's from Southern Africa and Venus because it was something to love. But at the same time, her body was seen as grotesque at the same time. So she was shown around Europe and everybody had this, you know, complicated relationship to her. Um, so I want you to look more about her history. But then it connects to the idea of the Brute. Um, and this picture you see here, uh, it's a World War II picture, I think, um, and saying that Germany, I think, uh, is a brute and is taking the women. And so you need to enlist to fight that. Um, But having a very common or very similar um, picture um, in the Vogue magazine, and LeBron St. Uh, James says he didn't realize what he was doing, um, and maybe even didn't see the picture until after it was published, but it kind of shows once again this idea of, you know, African people are brutish, or African males specifically are brutish, um, and only are there to steal um, white women, and you need to fight them, so similar uh, iconography is used here so in the article itself and i'm only going to over this briefly um it's about a fear of the other so the other the grotesque the deviant the abject is you're afraid of it but the other whatever that is is also a part of the self so reading baldwin freaks are called freaks and they're treated as they are treated in the main ab- Abominably, because they are human beings who cause to echo deep within us our most profound terrors and desires Most of us however do not appear to be freaks Though we are rarely what we appear to be We are for the most part visibly male or female our social roles defined by our sexual equipment and He's relating to the fact that everyone is he called it androgynous. So everyone is both male and female but reading um, But reading the a freak, you or whatever you're calling the other, you read it in yourself and you have an emotional reaction to it, whatever that emotional reaction may be. And for people with power, that emotional reaction may be with force and with negative force. And so this keeps the idea, or at least I'm telling you, it's keeping the idea of normality because normality doesn't even really exist. And normality is a construct, um, but having a fear of the other rather than acceptance of the other or any other type of relationship maintains what is normal. Therefore, there is a ability to define what is not in the other. And so I want you to think for a moment, um, and this is not necessarily a reflection, but what is whiteness or the idea of whiteness without the abnegation? And abnegation, once again, is like denial of blackness, Um can whiteness exist without there being an othering of black? Can you define what a white identity would be without saying it's not a black identity? Um, and this is the same conversation that we could have with heterosexuality. Can you discuss heterosexuality without there being an idea of homosexuality or without othering homosexuality? Can heterosexual and homosexuality be on the same page? And once again, this is probably a 2018 conversation that maybe it can, but while Baldwin is writing about it and basically up until 2005 even, um, there was definitely like, well, if you're not straight, then you're gay, right? But maybe there are spectrums in between all of it. Um, And we shouldn't be so, uh, we shouldn't be so strict in defining by these very not actually well-defined terms such as heterosexuality and homosexuality so reflection number eight um, and this is the last reflection but everything else is important information so please read um, how does being black impact Baldwin sexual behaviors so if you look into the article itself um, think about all the events and experiences that Baldwin talks about, and how is it impacted by his racial identity? B is how do white people he's encountered react to his black queerness? And C, why is Michael Jackson, the singer, confusing to Baldwin? Why does, what does it say about Baldwin's optimism for black queer identity? So briefly again, um, the next uh, article, and I made this optional as well, is just about queer studies, Q-U-A-R-E. And so this was presented by E. Patrick Johnson. He's a teacher at Northwest and he does performance studies. But he basically is trying to say we should use instead the word queer when we were talking about black queer studies or black queer theory or black queer interest, because queer is read as white. Um, and this is kind of talking about, uh, the same thing about the white gay male being kind of the face of LGBT rights and struggle, um, and. E. Patrick Johnson wants to challenge that a little bit, particularly within scholarship. And so here, I just briefly was trying to say that queer studies also, even though it seems to be kind of on the forefront of intersectionality, is not always intersectional. And Gloria Anzaldúa, a very, uh, once again, another prominent theorist, said that queer is used as a false umbrella. And so it says that all queer ethnicities classes are short under, but Like I said, when you look at actually the um, protests, when you look at the scholarship, queer tends to be um, equated to a white and often a white male experience or a white um, androgynous experience, but doesn't um, look at the other facets of how people are living their lives as part of a queer experience. Um, And then for me and for this class uh it goes on kind of the whole idea of why are we kind of questioning the idea of what is queer what is black what is included and not included what is where do women or black women fit within african-american studies because african-americans itself African-American studies the discipline has not always been intersectional and even today how people are challenging um, What becomes African-American studies? uh, Sometimes people still have to reiterate the idea that it should be intersectional Intersectional work is being done. There's a lot more literature about Um, African American women, there's a lot more literature about different classes of African American people, there's a lot more literature about queer identities within the African American community, but as always, more work should be done. And so the questions I have here are just the questions that are being asked in the field, and are consistently being asked in the field. And we can basically say in order to keep the field honest, um, because once you kind of make assumptions about what African-American studies is, then it stops being a critical framework. It stops asking the deeper questions. And so having these deeper questions at the forefront of what should be studied, of how it should be studied, and what should actually make the canon of African-American history experience, as well as the more theoretical and praxis based information, you know basically i'm just saying all this is good so um kind of we can take it as what are the questions or what are the assumptions so african-american says is a criticism of racist norms over time and space but do african-american say should also be a criticism of gender norms within the african-american community and a criticism of heteronormativity within african-american community second one being african-american studies purpose is to pursue knowledge from the internal perspective of africana people but we also have to criticize should or we have to acknowledge or recognize that all experiences should be valued and what are all those experiences and thirdly being african-american supporters are advocates for centering the africana experiences and knowledges and is support withheld though for certain populations so just like every time i refer back to the civil rights movement do we talk about where were the black women in the civil rights movement do we talk about where were the queer folks in the civil rights movement which leads me to my last segue um is with bayard rustin and bayard rustin was actually um martin luther king's right hand man he was a black queer man but his history often gets erased in larger conversation of um civil rights movement i would assume because of his queer identity um but you know that's for history to say and so in general that's the end of 7c hope to see you in lecture number eight